I'm David Reynolds. I'm a fellow of Christ College. And I'm Christina Spohr, formerly a fellow of Christ and now a professor of international history at the London School of Economics. Our job and our pleasure is to explore the historical roots of the world in which we live. Today, television and radio are full of stories about relations with Russia, debating whether we slipped into another Cold War. This evening, we want to take you back 30 years. No deal. Star Wars sinks the summit. Time magazine's cover said it all. Two men, dejected, drained, and unable to look each other in the eye. Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev as they left Hefty House near Reykjavik on the evening of October the 12th in 1986. That's also how the Reykjavik summit has gone down in history, as an enormous missed opportunity, a total failure, the chance to abolish nuclear weapons thrown away because the two leaders wouldn't budge over the small print of Reagan's strategic defense initiative, SDI, or Star Wars. But we think that this whole familiar negative narrative is completely wrong. The no deal actually proved a springboard for the most radical nuclear arms agreement of the entire Cold War in Washington, just one year later, when Reagan and Gorbachev signed away all their crews, Pershing II and SS-20 missiles in December 1987. And we want to share with you some of the findings of our new book, forgive the commercial, uh, Transcending the Cold War, uh, and there'll be some copies available afterwards if uh, we haven't put you off completely. Um, this draws on newly opened archives from both sides of the former Iron Curtain, and we also want to bring this summit alive um, to reveal what happened behind closed doors with the aid of the transcripts of those meetings uh, themselves. To understand the Cold War background to Reykjavik quickly, let's look at three key words. Deterrence, detente and defense. Ever since the Americans and the Soviets got the bomb in the 1940s, they tried to win the Cold War while avoiding World War III through the strategy of deterrence. Neither side dared to resort to nuclear war because each possessed enough nukes to annihilate the other. The result was a precarious balance, a balance of terror. In the 1970s, the two sides tried to control the spiraling arms race and ease tension. That's called détente. Agreements in Moscow and later in Vienna aimed to limit the growth of long-range nuclear weapons. But the two sides still had enough hardware to destroy each other and indeed the world. And they didn't stop the build-up of modernized weapons in Europe especially intermediate-range nuclear forces, the INFs. In the early 1980s, after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, relations sunk into a deep freeze. No summits were held, and arms control talks completely stalled. Enter Ronald Reagan. I think you've seen that motto at the bottom again more recently, but we won't mention that. Um, January 1981, that's when things got even worse. Reagan started a new weapons buildup and a crusade against communism, famously calling the Soviet Union an evil empire. Enter Gorbachev in March 1985. A new Soviet leader from a younger generation. Determined to reform the Soviet system in order to make it more competitive with the West. Not, on the face of it, a promising start to a close relationship. But these were complex men. Although co-warriors, each had a real loathing of nuclear weapons. 
They wanted to move beyond the balance of terror. On Reagan's side, the conviction was long-standing. He believed that a balance of power built on the threat of mutual extermination was truly barbaric. So he wanted to shift from the strategy of deterrence to a new idea of defense, putting up a shield against, as he put it, the sword of nuclear weapons. And there's his strategic defense initiative, which he unveiled in March 1983. And he spoke of his dream to render nuclear weapons, as he put it, impotent and obsolete. The Soviets didn't believe Reagan was sincere. They saw Star Wars as just a cover for the US to mount a first strike on the USSR, sure that the American homeland was shielded from attack. But in reality, Gorbachev was closer to Reagan than appearances suggested. He was desperate to control the arms race and actually reduce nuclear stockpiles because of the costs to the Soviet economy. And his fear of nuclear power became even more acute in April 1986 after the explosion at Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine, which spewed radiation across Eastern Europe. So, despite the apparent Cold War divide, these two leaders had things in common. But no one could have predicted how their relationship would develop. Reagan and Gorbachev first met in Geneva in 1985. And this was a kind of icebreaker. They found lots to argue about, but they also began to forge a personal rapport, despite the differences of age and ideology. Gorbachev sensed that Reagan was sincere about wanting to abolish nuclear weapons. And the president, in turn, warmed to the dynamism, the energy of this new Soviet leader, his openness to new ideas and to diffusing the Cold War. That fireside chat would have been inconceivable in previous Soviet-American summits. And when they parted with a handshake, Gorbachev said it was like a spark of electric mutual trust. But summits are heady moments. It's not easy for leaders to sustain momentum when they return to the lowlands of daily politics and get sucked into their bureaucracies. In September 1986, Gorbachev sent an anxious letter to Reagan warning that the spark of Geneva had been extinguished. He said that the negotiations needed a major impetus and that the two of them had to intervene personally. He proposed a quick meeting to galvanize US and Soviet bureaucrats to prepare agreements for them to sign during his planned visit to the United States in 1987. And so, on October the 11th, 1986, they were sitting in Hufti House, uh, the Icelandic government guest house just outside Reykjavik, a convenient halfway point between Washington and Moscow. Gorbachev presented his three-point plan. First, a 50% reduction in strategic nuclear weapons, in other words, those of intercontinental range. Second, the complete elimination of all intermediate-range nuclear forces, the INFs, within Europe, excluding the independent British and French nuclear deterrents. And third, the extension of the anti-ballistic missiles, the ABM Treaty of 1972, for another 10 years, and the confining of any tests of space weapons to what he called laboratories. All three proposals, Gorbachev insisted, had to be taken as a single integrated package. 
We're going to leave that up for a moment because although this is not, uh, you're not going to be tested on this afterwards, this is the technical bit and it's worth having it in mind now because it'll matter later on. The ABM treaty, the third of those elements, was the most sensitive issue. It served to reinforce the doctrine of mutual assured destruction, MAD, MAD, by limiting the right of either superpower to build defensive systems against enemy missiles. Reagan's SDI project threatened to upset this balance of terror by creating a missile defense shield in space. And that's why the Soviets desired to prevent serious American testing of such hardware. Now, Reagan's approach was diametrically opposite on the question of ABMs. He claimed that once defensive systems had been tested, he would share this technology with the Soviets as mutual protection, as he put it, against some maniac like Hitler. He likened this offer to abolishing poison gas after World War I but keeping gas masks in case of unforeseen situations. The rest of the day was taken up with Reagan's response to Gorbachev's plan and the issues that it raised. Eventually, they agreed that during the evening, two groups of experts should try to thrash out disputed issues in the two key areas of arms control and human rights. It was a tedious discussion, but just before they were about to head to dinner, things began to hot up when Reagan put aside his notes. The summit was finally coming to the boil. Listen. We, are, we wanted to get Tom Hanks to do this, but the budget didn't come. <laughs> you have to put up with us. Listen, we are two civilized countries, two civilized peoples. When I was growing up, that's before your time, countries had rules of warfare directed at protecting the peaceful population. But now that an ABM regime exists, both countries have terrible missiles aimed at each other that can annihilate countless numbers of people, uh, women, children. And the sole defense against this possibility is the threat that we are also in a position to carry out such mass extermination. This is an uncivilized situation. I think the world would be a lot more civilized if we, the two great powers, create defensive systems and eliminate terrible modern armaments. We propose writing into the treaty that we will share with you the defensive weapons we are able to create. Excuse me, Mr. President, but I do not take your idea of sharing SDI seriously. You are not willing to share with us oil well equipment, digitally guided machine tools, or even milking machines. Let's be realistic. While the two leaders went to bed, their advisors went to work. The group on arms control labored through the entire night till 6.30 a.m. After this nocturnal marathon the next day, and the next session commenced at 10 a.m. on Sunday, the 12th of October. This was supposed to wrap up the summit. Reviewing the conclusions of these working groups, the two leaders agreed fairly quickly on moving towards a 50% cut in strategic nuclear arsenals and to a zero option for intermediate nuclear forces in Europe and massive INF cuts in Asia. So far, so good. But then, they clashed over the balance between deterrence and defense. Gorbachev's essential aim was to abolish offensive nuclear weapons within 10 years while retaining 
the ABM Treaty during that period as a protection for the Soviet Union against new space weapons. Reagan, however, kept hammering on about the right to develop a defensive shield in space, claiming that this would provide a long-term protection against any kind of rogue states. The Soviet leader's obsession with the ABM Treaty was now infuriating the president. Damn it! Why are you defending this agreement? Mr. President, the ABM Treaty was signed in 1972. It did not arise accidentally or suddenly. It was the result of many years of debates among the leaders and experts of the United States and of the Soviet Union and other states. The ABM Treaty is needed as the foundation of strategic stability. And what have we heard from you? Only the United States' own interests. We said, President Reagan is a man who does not like making concessions. I am now convinced of this. But, as the American saying goes, it takes two to tango. And it takes two to control arms, to reduce and eliminate nuclear weapons. Therefore, I invite you to a male tango, Mr. President. There was a time when we worked side by side, yes. There was a time when a moratorium on nuclear blasts was in effect. It was in force for three years. But then the Soviet Union broke the moratorium and began testing with unprecedented intensity. The Soviet Union used the period of the moratorium to prepare new types of nuclear weapons. There is another good American saying. It goes like this. Once burned, twice shy. I understand that you do not trust us, just as we do not trust you. But I am convinced that historical facts are on our side. Uh, long ago, uh, Karl Marx said... Well, earlier the president referred to Lenin, and now he's moved on to Marx. Well, um... Uh, everything that Marx said, Lenin said too. Um, Marx was the first and Lenin was his follower. They both said that for the success of socialism, it must be victorious throughout the world. I advise you not to waste time on this. Each people and all peoples have the right to decide how to manage things in their own country. And therefore, I was very surprised that you said that the Soviet Union is the evil empire and called for a crusade against socialism in order to drive socialism on the scrap heap of history. I will tell you that this is quite a terrifying philosophy. What does that mean politically? Make war against us? No, it doesn't. I, I am convinced that if you and I have different ideological ideas, that is not a reason for us to shoot at one another. On the contrary, I am convinced that in addition to political relations, purely human relations between us is possible. Yes, unquestionably. And I would even like to try to convince you to join the Republican Party. An interesting idea. Now, let's return to the wording. (sighs) 
Now they handed over the wording to the diplomats, who were desperate to reach a compromise solution. They tried to disentangle those three big issues. Even if SDI remained unresolved, they wanted at least to walk away from Reykjavik with agreement on halving strategic nuclear arsenals and abolishing most of their intermediate nuclear forces. They broke for lunch at 1.30. When they resumed, things seemed to be looking up. Well, we can agree on abolishing all missiles. I don't think there is any disagreement between us in this respect. Do we have in mind then that, uh, and I think this would be very good, uh, that by the end of 1996, all nuclear explosive devices would be eliminated, including bombs, battlefield systems, cruise missiles, submarine weapons, intermediate range systems, and, and so on? We could say that, list all those weapons. Right. Now, if we agreed that now, we can turn this agreement over to our delegations so that they can prepare a treaty which you can sign during your visit to the US next year. This was a truly amazing moment. The two superpowers envisaging the total abolition of their nuclear weapons over the next decade. The leaders were exhilarated, many of their experts deeply alarmed. But from these dizzy heights, they got sucked back again into the black hole of the Star Wars issue. The Americans spent much of the afternoon trying to find a compromise formulation about the SDI project. Gorbachev stated that he had no objection in principle to its research and development, but he was adamant that testing must not be conducted in the air or space. It had to be confined to what he called the laboratories. This one word, laboratories, proved the sticking point for the final act of the summit. After reconvening at 5.30 p.m., they just went round and round in circles. You are destroying all my bridges to continuation of my SDI program. I cannot go along with restrictions on the plan as you demand. Is that your final position? If so, we can end the meeting here and now. Yes, it is. You must understand me. To us, the laboratory issue is not a matter of stubbornness or hard-headedness. It is not casuistry. It is all too serious. We are agreeing to deep reductions and ultimately the destruction of nuclear weapons. And at the same time, the American side is pushing us to agree to give them the right to create space weapons. That is unacceptable to us. I can't go along with that. You and I have different positions, different problems. In your country, nobody can criticize you without winding up in jail. In my country, the situation is different. I have a lot of critics who wield great influence. And if I agree to such a formulation, they will launch a campaign against me. They will accuse me of breaking my promise to the people of the United States regarding SDI. If I understand you, Mr. President, you are now addressing me in a trusting manner. As a man who occupies in his own country a position equal to yours, 
Therefore, I say to you frankly and in the same trusting manner, if we sign a package containing major concessions by the Soviet Union regarding fundamental problems, you will become, without exaggeration, a great president. You are now literally two steps away from that. But there won't be another opportunity like this. Let me say frankly that if I give you what you ask, it will definitely hurt me really badly at home. All right, let's end it here. What you propose is something we cannot go along. I have said all I can. Are you really going to turn down a historic opportunity for agreement for the sake of one word in the text? You say it's just a matter of one word, but it's not a matter of a word. It's a matter of principle. If I go back to Moscow and say that despite our agreement on the 10-year period, we have given the United States the right to test SDI in space so that the U.S. is ready to deploy it by the end of that period, they will call me a fool and an irresponsible leader. After our meeting in Geneva, I was convinced that you and I had established personal contact of the kind the leaders of our countries have never had before. You and I understood each other very, very well. But now, when I ask you a personal favor, which would have enormous influence on our future relations, you have refused me. I want to ask you once more to change your viewpoint, to do it as a favor to me, so that we can go to the people as peacemakers. We cannot go along with what you propose. If you will agree to banning tests in space, we will sign this document in two minutes. We cannot go along with something else. We have already agreed to what we could. We are not to blame. Even though our meeting is ending in this way, I have a clear conscience before my people and before you. I have done everything I could. It's just too bad we have to part in this way. We were so close to an agreement. I think you didn't want to achieve an agreement anyway. I'm really sorry. I'm also very sorry it's happened in this way. I wanted an agreement and did everything I could, if not more. I don't know when we'll ever have another chance like this. I don't either. The two men, angry and exhausted, trudged down the steps of Hefty House, their grim faces captured by the horde of press photographers and TV cameramen. There was clearly no deal, and not even a date for Summit 2 in America. To the watching world, Reykjavik was unquestionably a total failure. But was it? Soon afterwards, Gorbachev said the issue was never who beat whom. Rather, it was to move beyond the post-Geneva deadlock and press towards a major breakthrough. That hadn't been achieved, but significant progress had been made. It proved, he said, quite easy to reach an understanding on nuclear weapons. That had been about talking on total abolition by 1996. Even on SDI, he felt that perhaps we need one more try to step over the boundary that still divides us. Far 
from being a failure, Gorbachev judged Reykjavik to be a step in a complicated dialogue in a search for solutions. On Reagan's return to Washington, he said much the same thing in public to the American people and to the world. He didn't mention 1996 as the, the date that they were aiming at, but he said that we are closer than ever before to agreements that could lead to a safer world without nuclear weapons. And despite some point scoring about Gorbachev's intransigence over SDI, the president's tone was definitely upbeat. But how to move from words to deeds? Someone had to shift ground. Gorbachev did so first. He needed to make progress towards arms reduction because of the scale of Soviet military spending and the growing budget crisis. So, already in late October 1986, he and the Politburo secretly agreed that they would accept SDI tests, not just in the laboratories, but anywhere except in space. Reagan's position also shifted because of two dramatic events in early November 1986 that we often forget in the story of his presidency. First, news broke about a secret government operation to sell arms to the Ayatollah's regime in Iran and use the proceeds to finance anti-communist guerrillas in Nicaragua. Within weeks, frenzy about what was called Irangate, like Watergate, which had toppled Nixon, would sap Reagan's administration, tarnishing even the Teflon president himself. And then the results of the US midterm elections, also in November 1986, meant that the opposition Democrats would control both houses of Congress. So Reagan now had no chance on Capitol Hill of getting the funding he needed to sustain SDI during his final two years in the White House. Politically weakened and also fretful about his legacy as a peace president, he, no less than Gorbachev, needed to compromise. Aware of the new political dynamics in Washington, Gorbachev decided to untie the disarmament package on which he had been so insistent at the Reykjavik summit. He agreed with key aides that while its individual elements still made sense, the package in its present form only tied his hands. Gorbachev had no illusions. Superpower competition would continue, but he wanted to move away from confrontation. He lamented, as difficult as it is to conduct business with the United States, we are doomed to it. We have no choice. Both sides therefore decided to focus on one of the issues about which they'd more or less agreed at Reykjavik intermediate-range nuclear forces. Despite strong resistance from the Pentagon and from the Soviet military, during the course of 1987, the two foreign ministers hammered out a worldwide double-zero to eliminate all Soviet and American INFs, both in Europe and in Asia. Equally important, they established an unprecedented regime of mutual on-site inspections that would give substance to Reagan's mantra, trust but verify, trust but verify. And they agreed that Gorbachev would come to Washington in December 1987 to sign this INF treaty. So, so. Reykjavik had not been a failure. During that frenetic weekend in Iceland, Reagan and Gorbachev had not merely thought the unthinkable, but dared to speak the unspeakable. Face to face, each had catalyzed the anti-nuclear radicalism in the other. This was summitary 
in positive mode, generating a real synergy between two leaders. They had to be ready to tango, as Gorbachev put it, looking together for outcomes that were mutually beneficial. Creative diplomacy was not and is not a zero-sum game in which I win only when you lose. Ultimately, the unlikely chemistry between Reagan and Gorbachev proved a vital step in transcending the Cold War. The zero-sum approach to summitry is, of course, always very tempting for leaders playing to the political gallery at home. But summitry across international divides has little chance of success if it is treated as a series of confrontations, winner-loser. As Reagan and Gorbachev showed in their journey from Geneva via Reykjavik to Washington, each summit should ideally be treated as part of a process of deepening dialogue. Recently, in fact most recently only last week, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has reiterated this idea, emphasizing the need to keep open lines of communication with Putin's Russia at a time of renewed East-West tensions. Equally, however, she has insisted on the necessity of maintaining a strong defense. Merkel is surely right. There's always a delicate balance to be struck between the politics of deterrence and the diplomacy of dialogue, making up your mind when to stand firm and when to reach out. 30 years on from Reykjavik, that remains the perennial challenge for those who have the vision, skill, and nerve to venture to the summit. Thank you. Thank you. So we've now got some time for Q&A if people want. There's a roving mic here, and if you could just wait till the mic comes to you, then uh, you can, everybody can hear. So, um, gentleman there, middle. Um, it's, it's always difficult to imagine the counterfactual, but what do you think uh, might have happened if Irangate had not occurred and, Reagan and Reagan's party had not suffered defeat in the midterm elections, do you think? Um, I think it would have been less likely, certainly, in fact, considerably less likely. What is striking, and we talk about it a lot in the book, is that both in both countries, both capitals, there's huge resistance to these, this agree these agreements. Um, and uh, the Pentagon, the National Security Council, dead against it. Um, uh, Gorbachev is facing similar pressures at home. And I think Reagan's political need for an agreement is such that he's able to override that opposition. Otherwise, it might have been different. Yeah, well, I would have said that it also depends then to show how strong one is as an individual leader, because sometimes leaders, of course, can go against the advisors. But I mean, that, in that period, Reagan really had strong resistance from some very strong-minded people. Including in, his own vice president. You want to talk about Bush? I mean, Bush's opposition as well. I mean, Vice President Bush, one of the things we write about as well in the book is that when Bush came to power after Reagan, so the first half of 1989, Bush had a complete moratorium on dealing with the Soviets because he felt that Reagan had become too soft on the Soviet Union. So, you know, it's a very... What's fascinating about this period is, is how narrow the window of opportunity was, and that's, that's really interesting to, to pick up. Um, why don't we, people at the back always get left out, so there's a gentleman right at the very back. Can you run up there and, uh, and then we'll come over this side. So. Thank you, Bob. Uh, my question is a bit more modern. Um, why, even though you know, America's developed a ballistic missile defense and it, it's not very effective, why is it still such a contentious issue uh, between at least the superpowers and maybe other uh, powers as well? What, the LMD? 
ballistic missile defense. Yeah, the NMD, presumably. Yes. Yeah. I mean, also, if you think about the NMD, which was a sort of similar Star Wars project or a sort of continuation from the SDI under George Bush Jr., I mean, there's always this issue, can one side make itself ineffectively, give itself such a shield that it makes all these nuclear weapons uh, ineffective altogether? And, of course, there's this whole fear of that, you know, if one side has a shield that it's unpenetrable, then everything else becomes... Obsolete, And of course, the irony here in the summit in Reykjavik was that Reagan kept sort of saying, well, I'm happy to share it with you against, you know, all the rogue states. In some ways, that's probably quite modern because mm. you could say, well, now we have all these rogue states because of all this further nuclear proliferation and, and what has been materializing. So I think that's why it's a really sensitive thing because the, the doctrine in which countries think have a lot to do with, you know, using first strike attack or not on, on nukes and, and the, the, the shield that actually still doesn't really work as a technology is still sort of the fantasy that the side who gets it first um, can make itself almost invincible in, in this kind of weaponry. In a way, now we look back on that era as a relatively stable one where just you know, two major powers had control of the main arsenal of weapons of mass destruction, whereas now there is a proliferation of nuclear states and, of course, the capacity of... Uh, uh, you know, s small groups to inflict major damage, as with 9-11, without using nuclear weapons. So that the, the threat, the, the, the proliferation of threat and the difficulty of managing it is very different from the Reagan-Gorbachev era. Um, question, question over here. There was such, can you come down here? And, uh, and then we'll go back up there. So, yeah. There's a whole bunch there. I'd like to contemplate the scenario in which they had actually managed to eliminate nuclear weapons in 1996 or before then. Um, two parts to the question, really. How long would it take either side to re-establish, to rebuild nuclear weapons, having eliminated them? And what was the balance of conventional forces at the time? Um, do you want to go first? Um. What, what is striking about Reykjavik is, is that sense of leaders who have really been carried away by the moment, and their advisors are just looking and thinking, you know, my God, what is going on here? Um, one of the things we write about quite a lot in the book is the way that uh, bureaucrats are much more cautious about the, all these sorts of things. But in principle, there was a good deal of agreement in the working groups that it was feasible to imagine a regime of, of moving towards the elimination of nuclear weapons once you had that critical element of uh, willingness to be open to the other side's inspections. That was one of the biggest changes in this whole debate, that, that um, Gorbachev was willing, in fact, probably at that stage, to go further than the Americans in... Uh, un, unprepared on-site inspections, unnotified un, un on-site inspections. So it would have been, I think, in principle possible to do this, so it would have been a huge um, effort. Um, uh, I think in general, though, I mean, you know, we must not forget we're talking about the two superpowers, but other powers had nuclear weapons too. And we were talking about one particular category, intermediate nuclear forces, by which we mean, you know, Soviet SS-20s first stationed since 1976, which made the Western Europeans, especially the Germans, really nervous, and that led to the dual track decision and then subsequently the stationing of Pershing II and cruise missiles from 83 onwards. So we're looking at a category of weapons that has only been placed into, you know, the wider European area at this point, and then four years later, it's gotten rid of again. But, you know, once you start looking at intercontinental um, nuclear weapons, the strategic missiles, mm. you know, that's what we talk about still today, you know, start. You know, we had strategic arms limitation treaties, very difficult to make any movement really on the start. And, of course, whatever considerations come into the mind of, of, the, of the two superpowers um, <laughs> is, of course, that other countries also have nuclear weapons, and also there's short-range nuclear weapons. So we're talking about so many categories. And at the same time, yes, they start talking about um, conventional forces uh, agreement in, in Europe, um, because the Soviet Union was much stronger than um, the West, 
and that was always an issue for the NATO. That's why there was this whole business about nuclear deterrence, so that you know one would not get a tank attack in, 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 uh, into Germany. Um, and that went actually on during this whole breakup of the Soviet Union, just as they got to some sort of kind of agreement on a, on a balancing between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact collapses. And everything that you have kind of begun to agree is sort of out of the window because we, have to, we had to re-sort of calibrate where things were going because there was a question of the Red Army troop withdrawal that would take until 1994 in the German case, 1997 in other Eastern European states. So, you know, we're looking then at a, at a stretch of time when the Soviet Union has disappeared. The Red Army is still stuck and one is wondering where are all these soldiers going and all the material, where is it going? And then, you know, what's happening in Eastern Europe and what kind of material have they got, national material? material um, and then then once they donate, I mean, the, the whole thing got sort of discombobulated that they just sort of got to talk about with Gorbachev mm. um, in, in 1989, 1990, 1991. But I think, I mean, just, just to go back to it, I, I mean, I think it's worth saying that they were planning to, to um, uh, abolish strategic nuclear weapons as well as intermediate reactions, weapons. And the intention was that Gorbachev would sign an INF deal, Intermediate Nuclear Forces, in Washington in 87, and then hopefully Reagan would sign a strategic nuclear forces agreement when he went to Moscow in June 88. And he went there, but the, the backlash against the agreements, uh, particularly within the United States, within the, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, was such that they basically went really slow on all the discussions with the Russians, so it wasn't possible to sign a START agreement. Um, but that was certainly within the purview. But as Christina said, I mean, one of the things that we found really striking about this period of transcending the Cold War is that the agreements that were reached between Reagan and Gorbachev and after his cautious start, Bush and Gorbachev, assumed the continued existence of the Soviet Union. In other words, uh, there would be a stable partner, but one that was no longer as confrontational. It would still be a rivalry, as we said and, uh, you know, in, the, in the talk. It's going to be a competitive relationship, but it would be peaceful. one where peaceful, you know. And so you could, you could do business together. And the thing that really torpedoed everything and, and upset all sorts of calculations uh, in, in Russia and in, uh, in, in, in the West was the fact that the Soviet Union just simply implodes in 1991. And we're still dealing with the, with the consequences of it. Anyway, there's a lady up there and then a gentleman up in the middle. If we roll on to today, it's fascinating what you've been saying, but are there any lessons for whether or not any particular nation state would actually use nuclear weapons? We've got Iran deals with them, we've got China, and more worryingly, if you watch Newsnight every night, um, North Korea as well, with a mobile nuclear device that could hit the west coast of America. But, but anything in your research that would say, well, you know, no one's going to ever use them, it's just posturing, or no, some commentators now think. North Korea or even Russia might again on Newsnight last night. Want to talk about 19, 1914 analogy, Schmidt and Merkel and people like that? Yeah, but I, yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think that I mean the, these are these are the fascinating questions. Um, the uh, but it's not necessarily just the reading of the of nuclear diplomacy. It's it's really almost diplomacy in general is about trying to second guess what the other side is going to do. And uh, for example, when Neville Chamberlain went to meet Hitler, the first, he had three meetings in September 1938, the point was to find out if the man was mad. Because if he was, in a sense, clinically mad, then you couldn't have a predictable international environment at all. And one of the things that we brought out a lot in the book is this importance of predictability for, for each side. Uh, if you're dealing with, as Chamberlain said, a mad dog, then it's, you know, it's a real issue. He came back believing that Hitler was a man who was rational and you could do business with him, which, of course, in itself was, was mistaken. But so you know, in the case of North Korea, uh, that would be almost the, the, the same Chamberlain question. Is this a, a, a mad dog kind of state? In which case, it's very difficult to know how to handle it. I mean, some people said, you know, Khrushchev was a gambler, and that's why in the Cuban crisis we got so close to 
to perhaps some usage. And, um, you know, under Brezhnev, for example, even if the Soviets had a lot of nukes and put in the SS-20s in Europe, there was a sense, well, he's still a rational man. As long as it's a sort of a rational game, then it's all about the deterrence and the posturing and the rhetorics. And it's almost, if you have nuclear weapons, then it deters the other side from using theirs, and you don't get to use yours. Mm. Um, and, I mean, you can see this now with Putin, who yesterday said that he's going to develop this um, new big weapon which, which has 16 warheads and which, which where does one missile can destroy the country the size of France. And again, you know, it's about saying, I have something and then see who else will have something. But the others think that if they have some nuclear weapons, at least they might not be the ones who get hit because at least they can hit back. I mean, that's always this idea, you know, why has Britain got Trident? Because hopefully if there was a nuclear war, they could still lob one and then they would come out, you know, as being still alive. I mean, all this is in, in some ways, these is mind games. And these, and these mind games, once you had unleashed this weapon, the existence of this weapon, is in some ways based on some kind of rational behavior. The trouble is if you have a total nutcase, and they want to blow up the place, well, they will. But they don't need nuclear weapons for that. They could also use chemical weapons, biological, with anything else. I mean, we have seen this with these unpredictable non-state actors. So I think what's striking is that most leaders have a very simple repertoire of uh, anticipated human reactions. And um, however much advanced psychology one might wish to apply to all this, in the end, it's about rather personal judgments about the other person you're dealing with. And that, of course, is why they try and get up close and personal at a summit meeting so they can look the other person in the eye and say, yeah, he is rational, I can do business with him. But of course, part then of the, the seductiveness of a summit is the feeling that, well, it's all simple if we talk across the table to each other. Churchill, who you think of as a great cold warrior, was, was really taken in by Stalin. He said in January 1944, you know, if Stalin and I could have dinner once a week, we could sort out most of the problems. Yeah. But there we are. Uh, there was a lady, a gentleman over there in the middle. Yep. Thank you for your talk. Um, as an undergraduate, I got to spend a lot of time with Secretary Schultz, who was with Reagan. Well, you should come up here now and then give us a, give us a talk. <laughs> give us the advisory stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, and just hearing from his personal experiences and the stories he's told me about Reykjavik and just the general period, it seems as though you're right. It was all about personalities, and um, he's sort of given me and my fellow students a huge appreciation and balanced view of, uh, of Russia. And I've been able to travel to Russia multiple times over the past few years. And I feel as though returning back either to Europe or to the US that uh, the media and the political landscape sort of spawns a very distorted picture of the country. Mm -hmm. And it definitely uh, takes a toll on the ability for our two societies, at least, to form peer-to-peer -peer relationships. Yeah. So your book is called Transcending the Cold War. So my first question is, how do we transcend the new Cold War? Right. And the second question is, is that, um, you know, you're both historians, so um, were there any surprising finds? Did you do any interviews or find any new primary source mm. material um, that was interesting in, in putting the book together? Right. We've got an hour or so, haven't we? Now? <laughs> Do you want to go first? Or well, uh... I mean, on your second question, we should say, you know, that many of the chapters um, we, we worked through um, in a workshop, and we had basically set on two colleagues to work on each summit so that we would get the two sides. So you, say, you see, if you have a sort of Chinese-American summit, say, you know, you hear the American side from American scholars look through all the American sources that are newly available, and a Chinese scholar who could access some Chinese sources, and then they would actually have, have to negotiate how they tell the story of the summit to us, and then, you know, um, we would all learn from this. So in some ways, the whole book was a learning experience, both for the two co-authors who always had to write a chapter, and then for us to look at the whole and come up with some sort of wider um, conclusions, if you so want. Right? Yeah, so we, I mean, the point was because the archives are enormous, and none of us has the linguistic capacities. I mean, Christina has a lot of languages. I have rather less, but, you know, even so, you know, we had Russians, Americans, Chinese, uh, Germans, French, whatever it is. You know, so that was a one way of getting at the material um, and trying to see it from, see the issues from different sides and use those archives. Um, uh, on your question or your comment about Secretary of State Schultz, um, were you at Stanford? Um, I worked at Stanford. Yeah, I see, right. But I mean, one of the things we emphasize in the book is that. Um, Although leaders can make breakthroughs, uh, they can cut through a whole lot of bureaucratic red tape, and they have political uh, weight to, to get things done at home. 
uh, they cannot have it all up here, and they make huge mistakes. Um, so what you need, ideally, is a leader who's making breakthroughs, and you have a foreign minister or key advisors who will work with that leader. So Kissinger, for example, with Nixon, but more effectively, Schultz with Reagan. Uh, Schultz was, I think, in my opinion, one of the, uh, of the greatest American secretaries of state since at least the, you know, the end of the Second World War. Somebody who was tough, uh, worked well across the, 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 the borderline with, as it were, with the, the, the Iron Curtain line with uh, Shepard Nadze, his foreign minister. They did a lot of the legwork. Um, they maybe had 40 meetings or something like that in four or five, five years, uh, you know, building on what the leaders had done. And he was a very, very savvy politician, uh, as well as a very shrewd man. So that it's when leaders work effectively with a foreign minister and with the foreign ministry of bureaucracy that things do get done. I mean, your example I mean, would also, be Colin Genscher yeah, as well. Be, when we looked at you know, the summits just in this very end of the Cold War period over German unification, for example, then you see that although there are certain differences within the administration in, in Germany between the foreign minister and Chancellor Helmut Kohl, um, they make sort of transnational connections so that, um, you know, the foreign ministers of America, the Soviet Union and Germany have their own little links and then the leaders have their own little links, but in the end they all come together. And I think with Kohl, for example, you can see a chancellor who you wouldn't necessarily think is an intellectual in politics, but here's somebody who really grasped moments and, under and had an instinct and would find ways, uh, personal ways, to, to create some kind of links and good ties and a good atmosphere. So, you know, he and, and Gorbachev bonded over talking about their experience of the past. He went to the Caucasus where Gorbachev had a Dutcher. They had a special summit there. That was also an indication of, sort of the whole personal side of things. Um, but that we, we sort of conceptualized this also in another way. There are certain leaders who don't just ride the tide. They really see themselves, they, they, they feel they can shape history and they grasp, they understand, here's a decisive moment, and if I take it, I can make it into a moment of decision-making. And not every politician has necessarily that instant, uh, instinct, not every politician has that historical opportunity, but when the things come together and you have the right set of people, something can happen. And we felt that that was something very special mm. uh, in what comes together in the end of this period that we call the um, Cold War, because you know, this is a major transformation of the map in Europe, or if you so want, up to a point globally, in terms of the structures as we knew them. There's major redrawing of borders. And yet, in the past, if you think of the two world wars, if you think about 1871, if you think of 1815, all these changes happened conflictually. On this occasion, it happened peacefully. And so it has to do also with the managers who did this. It's not the people in the street making revolutions. Somehow this had to be managed in terms of state structures to rebuild the map that came about. I think we've got time for one more question. There's a gentleman down here. Sorry, we, we can talk afterwards as well if you'd like. So. But we have strict instructions to get out at week seven. So. So, so on that point then, how did, after all the finger pointing at Reykjavik, when they were very open and, and uh, blunt with each other, um, I think it was more finger pointing from Reagan's I saw just then, um, how did they get the dialogue, the discourse back on track? How did they find the spark well, uh, we talked about it briefly, but to try and fill it out a little more, um, it, partly it's um, a political movement on both sides by the leaders. So Gorbachev untying that package deal, Reagan being under pressure to, to, to reach some agreement. But then um, the, that's where the foreign ministers come in. So Schultz goes to see Shevardnadze, Shevardnadze comes to the... Uh, because the greater, uh, you know, if, if a leader does something with another leader, it's headline news all over the world. If a foreign minister visits a foreign minister, it, it, you know, it doesn't make the same kind of waves and ripples. And the Lots of... Re oh, yes. I mean, so they'll be sending messages all the time. I mean, Reagan was writing to the Soviet leaders right from the start of his presidency. He always had this sort of idea that he could maybe try and make a personal relationship even with people like Brezhnev and so on. Uh, so he believes in personal diplomacy. But a lot of the momentum, the pickup, is by uh, the, the foreign ministers and the foreign ministries because the bureaucrats start building their own networks as well. Where you have a series of summits over a number of years, it creates a whole set of, of connections between 
uh, middle-level bureaucrats, and they're the people who've got to you know, work out the details. I mean, if there's going to be an arms control agreement to abolish nuclear weapons in 10 years, there's going to have to be an awful lot of you know, experts working overtime. So, And of course, so, it's one aspect. I mean, if it was a package of three things, they managed to pick out the one where they can make progress. The make progress. Yeah. But it meant so much for Europe, and that's why it's so important for this history of diffusing the Cold War as we think about it when we think about the ending of the Cold War. That was War the in first Europe. time in January, in, in December '87, that the superpowers have ever reduced their nuclear arsenals to zero. And, and in this particular case, they abolished a whole category of nuclear weapons to zero, as Christina says. So it was a really dramatic moment. It said, you know, the, the arms race and is not uh, inexorable, it's not going to just carry us away. If, things, if leaders can work effectively, it's possible to reverse it. And you know, that, I think, is our large, large theme of our book. It's, it's exploring the places at which, despite all the constraints, leaders who work together can sometimes make a difference. And it's a very, very fine line between you know, uh, effective diplomacy and appeasement and, you know, and opportunities come and go. But you know, that's what we explore in the book. Anyway, we need to stop now. If anybody's interested in the book, we're downstairs. But thanks very much for your time.